Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter three. Verse 21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Let's pray. Father, Father, please hear us. Lord, there are people here who um, so need to grow in their understanding of the gospel. There are others who know not the gospel. Lord, there's such a wide range before me tonight. There are many who have walked with you for years and know your truth better than I, but you have me here tonight. So please, Lord, make your gospel clear. Let your gospel come with power. And we plead the righteousness of Christ, his name, our only confidence. If you do nothing, oh God, nothing will be done. Please gather for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that I read to you, particularly verses 25 through 26, have been called by some of the greatest theologians and preachers in the history of the church as the Acropolis of the Christian faith. The word Acropolis refers to a, 
a fortified city, the central city. And I believe that they are correct in that assumption. If I could only reserve one part of scripture, it would be this one. It would be this one. In it, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the inner workings of the gospel. We see the mind of God. We see that mind as it is revealed in his work of redemption in a most magnificent way with unusual clarity. And you must understand it. If you do not understand this passage, you do not understand the gospel. Yes, you can understand the gospel in a very simple way and it be a saving way. A child can be understood with just a few words and yet you are not called to be children, you're called to be mature. Parrots mindlessly parrot what they have heard, but you were created in the image of God. You're to know and understand what you have heard and you're to speak it with clarity. Some of you need to grow in your understanding of how to proclaim the gospel. And some of you may simply need to know the gospel because you do not, neither intellectually, academically, or savingly. And so tonight, um, I do not plan on any emotion, the raising of the voice, although that may come but is to set forth clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I would like to say one other thing. I have heard preachers say for far too long that this country is gospel hardened. It's not necessarily gospel hardened. I don't know what gives anyone the right to make that kind of call. I will say this, this country is gospel ignorant. It's gospel ignorant because most of its preachers are gospel ignorant. And so we need to understand the gospel and we need to proclaim it. So let's go. I want to begin in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that terrify you? Has it ever terrified you? You know, you can hear something over and over and over until it loses its meaning. Remember C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? When the ship made its way into darkness and they hear screaming in the water and they pull out this man who is literally overcome with terror in this soupy black water. And they pull him and the brave soldiers, the brave sailors say to him, man, what could scare you so? And he said, turn this boat around, turn this boat around, flee, flee. Why? We're not afraid. You're fools. Turn, flee. Why? This is the place where all your dreams come true. One sailor smiled to another and as if to say, and what's the problem? And the man screamed out, you fools, all your dreams come true thinking about what was said. Finally, it sets in. The men throw themselves to the tackles of the ship and turn the boat around as quickly as possible. They had heard him, but they had not heard him. They had not understood. 
Today we live in a culture that adheres, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and they laugh and they mock. They joke. Notice that they do not deny that they're sinners. They just don't care. And why do they not care? They don't know not, they do not know the one against whom they have sinned. Because so little is preached today in the modern day pulpit about the attributes of God. Jeremiah makes it quite clear. There is no higher knowledge. There is no supreme knowledge, preeminent knowledge above this one thing to know God. Sometimes I have students come to me, you know, with their PhDs and all sorts of things. And I'll ask them this question. When you were in Bible college, how many years of your theological studies were dedicated to the attributes of God? And he said, well, you know, I had a systematic class for two semesters, and I think we spent a few months. I go on to the master's level. How, much, how many years in your master level studies did you study God, the attributes of God? Well, you know, we had seminars on it. Few, you know, I took, yeah, a semester in systematic and, and then another, but attributes of God, I don't know, two months. And I go to the PhD program and I go, you, doctor, how many years have you spent studying the attributes of God, the knowledge of God, who God actually is? Well, I didn't choose that kind of seminar. The church, the world, is ignorance of the, has an ignorance of the one true God and it's deadly because the church has an ignorance of the one true God. And the church has an ignorance of the one true God because it's not being proclaimed from the pulpit. Principles, pragmatism, your best life now, how to get excited and stay there for as long as possible until you wind down like a little toy soldier. But how much do you know about God? The God of the Bible, the one Isaiah knew when he said, in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim, each one having six wings with two they covered their face and with two they covered their feet and with two they did fly. And one cried unto the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said, I, woe is me, am I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen. What? God. 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 You see, when you hear, for all have sinned, it's not really that severe a matter, is it? But what you have to understand is you have not sinned against the mayor of some small village. You've sinned against Lord God Almighty, the creator in the heavens and the earth. He told the stars to set themselves in their assigned places. And they bowed and they worshiped him. He told the planets, you will move in these orbits and you will not leave your course. And they said, amen. 
He told the mountains to be lifted up. He told the valleys to be cast down. He told the brave sea, you will come to this spot and go no further. And the sea worshiped. He looked at you and said, come. And you said, no. And that's why on the day of judgment, all of creation will stand up and applaud when God casts your soul into hell. Is this God too much for you? And your millennial sentiments all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you afraid? You should be. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. If there's ever been a verse in the history of hermeneutics that has been twisted, it is this one. Oh, I know what the modern preachers tell you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you'll never realize all the wonderful things he has for you because you just would not. You sinned. That's not what this text means. This is not a proof text for your best life now. To fall short of the glory of God means this. You were made for God. You were made to worship Him. You were made to carry out His will. That's what you were made for. And to do other, any other thing is to be a limb dislocated and broken and twisted. It's to be marred and shattered and made stupid and lifeless and animal-like. You chase wealth and fame and entertainment. You weren't made for that. You were made for Him. And you will find yourself restless until He lets Himself be found by you. You were made for Him. Not for your plans, not for your purposes. For Him. For Him. For him. All have sinned. How much? Look in Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we, that is the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already stated that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. This is a description of humanity. But don't look at humanity as just a, uh, as a collective. This is talking about you outside of Christ. This is talking about me outside of Christ. This is how God sees humanity. This is how God sees you. For there's none righteous, not even one. Isn't it amazing? The wisdom of Scripture. God knew in His wisdom it's not enough to say there's none righteous. Because immediately man would come back with a rebuttal. It's as though God is saying there's none righteous. And man goes, yeah, but not one. Not one is righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? The root idea is, is something of straight a standard. 
So you have a standard of righteousness, and that is the character of God. To be righteous is to be conformed to that standard, to be straight with that standard. To not be righteous is to be twisted. Another word we might use, perverted. That's you, that's me, that's humanity before God and apart from God's redeeming work. I don't know if you've ever seen in South America, we have them, but some places in North America also, where you pull an eel out of the water and the thing has lived in the mud. It's a freshwater eel. And, you, and you've pulled it out. And it's filthy and twisting and turning. You can't even get a hold on it. It's a, it looks like a horrific creature. That's you morally. That's you morally apart from Christ, outside of Christ. That's you. Now at this point you may be asking, why don't you say that's us instead of you? Because I want you to find no comfort in the collective. I'm looking at you as an individual. God's looking at you as an individual. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Don't try to include the preacher in this. You. This is you. Imagine God's creation as a beautiful little baby wrapped in a beautiful white gown and laid in a beautiful white crib with pillows and sheets and comforters, white, pristine, and God kisses the forehead of what he has made and walks away and closes the door and comes back the next morning and finds that a serpent has climbed out of the sewer, filthy and wretched, marred the entire crib with its stench and its stink and wrapped itself around the thing that God loved and strangled it to death. You say, oh, that's a marvelous description of Satan. I'm not talking about Satan, I'm talking about you. That's what the sinner is to creation. We've marred it, we've ruined it. Our sin has led the whole world into corruption. And as we sin, each sin grows exponentially in its impact on others. A vile, a wretched, a wicked race. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It is often said that the reasonable man will always choose the highest motive for whatever he does. He will seek out the highest motive. That is the only reasonable thing. So if you, tell, if you find me outside in my bathrobe, outside my house in the middle of the night and it's freezing and you say, why are you doing that? And I say, I have no idea. You would treat me as an imbecile. But if I'm standing outside in the same bathrobe in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, and you say, why are you doing that? The house is on fire. That is wise. That is wise. And what's my point? The highest reason, the greatest good for humanity is to seek God. 
and to seek the knowledge of God. That's the most reasonable thing to do. It's the most logical thing to do. It's the most rational thing to do. But what has humanity done? There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. We were made for him. Now utterly useless. That's humanity. Of no profit whatsoever to God. And then he goes on and he says, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Yes, but not even one. The majority of people that I talk to on the street, oftentimes in churches and in Christian schools, will always plead their morality as the hope of their salvation. I'm good. If I had a dime for every time someone told me they were good, why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm good. Then God is a liar in your estimation because God says you are not good. There's none good, not even one. I mean, compared to an Adolf Hitler, you all may get A's and B's. But compared to God, there's none good. No, not one. And he says, their throat is an open grave. With tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. That's the way God sees a lie. Have you ever told a lie? Have you told a lot of lies? Can you count the number of your lies? You may see them as white lies, little lies, this lie, harmless lie. But this is the way God sees it. Your throat's an open grave. It's a filthy, rotten cesspool of death. And your tongue, it's like a viper. It deceives. Poison is on your lips. You see, God doesn't see the things that we, the way we see things. Let me put it this way. You don't even see the th things the way your grandmother did. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, only 70 years ago, there were certain things that if you did them in public, you would either be arrested or placed in a mental institution. But in your generation, they're applauded. In a matter of just 70 so years, seven decades, if your parents and grandparents could return to you, they would think you had all gone mad. So in just a space of 70 years, in the space of when this school was founded, in a hundred years, if anyone from a hundred years ago were to come back and see the morality of this country and even what you will accept and watch, they would, have, they would call you mad, twisted, evil, mental. So how far has man fallen since Adam? How far away from God's opinion are we? All have sinned. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. The way of peace they have not known. 
One philosopher said, if, if we have one day without war, it's simply because everyone's loading their guns. Kill, maim. Millions upon millions upon millions of infants in the womb slaughtered. The death toll beyond anything anyone has ever seen in humanity to infants. And what you need to understand is God doesn't just judge individually, He judges collectively. He judges men and nations. He judges them together. Now we know that whatever the law says, our verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the cause of all of it. They don't fear God. Say, what does fear mean? Well, it means fear. If it had meant something else, they'd wrote something else. It means fear. It is not enough to say reverence. There is a sense of awe. A sense of otherness. It's kind of like this in the book of Revelation. When all of creation flees from his presence. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What is the purpose of the, of the law? It has many purposes, even has purposes in sanctification. But the primary purpose of the law, and the foundation of the purpose of the law is to expose your sin. And did you know this? Proverbs is the same. You read the law, it tells you you're a sinner and you need Christ. You read Proverbs, it tells you you are a fool and you need Christ. That's the purpose of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. What, is the, what happens in real preaching? The preacher lays a concrete floor. The preacher puts up bars of steel on this side and bars of steel on this side and bars of steel in front of you and bars of steel behind you so that the only place you can look now is up. You are condemned and the only way out is up. The purpose of the law is never to win you merit enough to be declared righteous before God. The purpose of the law is to drive you to the merit of Christ. Then he says in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be legally held to be right before God in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now time is going to go on and I, I, I need to move on a little bit faster, but now Paul comes with hope. 
and 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All the law, all the prophets, everything of the Old Testament, what is it doing? It's pointing you to your need and then it's pointing you to the Savior. Even the curse that God put upon creation in one way is an act of mercy. Every time a woman has pain in childbirth, every time a man works and works and works in vain, God is calling out to you saying, fallen, 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 condemned, 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 turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Christ. Christ. The young person told me one time, they were all excited and they say, yes. Christ is all we need. And I said, young man, Christ is all we have. You have nothing else apart from Christ. Nothing. The word destitute should be frequent on your lips. Apart from him, I am destitute. I don't meet him halfway. I contribute nothing to my salvation but my sin. It's not 0.99% Jesus and or 99% Jesus and 1% you. If it was 1% you, you still go to hell because you fail in the 1% and so do I. It's all of Christ. And any religion that does not teach it that way is just a stinking, vile rot of pharisaical hypocrisy. Pharisaical hypocrisy. It is Christ alone. Why did the preachers of old talk about plowing? This is plowing. This is telling you. I have worked in many impoverished countries. I have worked in places where people were starving. If I laid a bologna sandwich into the hands of Bill Gates, he'd throw it on the ground. He has no need of it. He doesn't want a bologna sandwich. I put that same sandwich in the hands of some of the poor with whom I have worked, and they would fall down on their knees and kiss my hands. You don't want God. You don't need God because you don't see your need. And maybe even some of you have joined yourself to this Christian university just so somehow you'll reap a benefit from it. But Christ is not center in your life. And your condemnation will be greater. Greater than the prostitutes, that of the prostitutes and tax gatherers because you do not play with the name of the Son of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And now Paul's going to make a turn in the passage. 
we turn to hope. Now he's talking to the Christian. He's already said, you cannot be right before God through your law, through your religion, through your church, through your religious affiliation, through your identification with some preacher or priest. All of that is rot. None of it works. None of it, none of it, none of it. Then he goes on to say, but being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The redundancy is intended being justified as a gift by his grace. He could have just said being justified as a gift or being justified by his grace. But he wants to be doubly sure you understand. What he's saying is you are justified. It's a gift. 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 Why? Because men constantly want to say it's my work. It's my work. It's my work. I earned it. I earned it. I earned it. I earned it. being justified as a gift by his grace. What does it mean to be justified? It is a forensic term. It's referring to a legal position before God in which the moment the sinner trusts in Christ, he is not only pardoned of his sins, past, present, and future, but he is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That perfect life that Jesus Christ lived, that always heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That life, that righteousness, that personal righteousness of Christ is imputed to the one who believes and now forever he stands righteous before God in Christ. See, Christ is not only greater than Moses, he's, he's greater than Joseph. Joseph would not share his coat of many colors with his brethren. Jesus shares his coat of righteousness with all those who believe in him. He clothes them so that they stand perfect before God. If you're a Christian here tonight, your legal position before God is that of one who is righteous. In fact, God will not see you even more righteous in heaven. You are righteous in his sight because of what his son did for you. And it is all his son. Look at it this way. All of us siblings failed. All of us failed. But our elder brother triumphed for us. He did it. The God man, Jesus Christ. Now, this word justification, it is commonly applied to all sorts of religions. But I, I want you to look at something for a moment. So, if, if I walk up to some people who call themselves Christians, and said, if you died right now, where would you go? They'd say, heaven. I'd say, why? Well, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I walk up to a, a Jewish, an Orthodox Jew, and I say, if you died right now, where would you go? I have the hope of being gathered to paradise, the way of the righteous. Why? Because I've tried to keep the law. Okay. I'm a righteous man. Okay. I went to a Muslim. If you died right now, where would you go? I would go to paradise. Why? I've read the Quran. 
I followed the great pillars of the faith. I give alms to the poor. I've made pilgrimages. I am a righteous man. They all have something in common, don't they? They are righteous in themselves. You come up to the Christian, the real one. If you died right now, where would you go? The Christian says, in sin I was conceived. And in sin I was brought forth. I went astray from the womb. I have broken every righteous command that God ever made. Well, sir, how could you have any hope of heaven? I have a hope. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He did it all. He did it all. He did it all. Religion is never about men getting glory. It's about God getting glory for saving men. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, redemption. We're going to talk about that more in a moment, but there, I hear sometimes in Christian songs, you know, people yelling out, I've been redeemed. The Puritans used to say that there are some words that should never fall from a Christian's lip, lest the lip be trembling. There are certain words too precious to pronounce without a bowed head and a broken heart and a looking unto Jesus. Redemption is one of them. I've been bought. Yes, you've been bought. You have. You know, redemption, the idea of redemption is you have a prisoner, a condemned, vile prisoner. You have a slave or maybe captive in a war that's held in chains. Redemption is the payment of a price that they might go free. Now you ought to understand from the metaphor, of course, that price is not going to come from the prisoner or the slave. It's got to come from outside. It's got to be external. Why is redemption so precious to Christians who think a bit? who are mature, why is redemption so precious? Because redemption was the blood of the Son of God. Blood that flowed as he was crushed under the wrath of his own father. To whom was the redemption paid? To the devil? No. No. The redemption was paid to God. God. Yes, God. Now here's where I want you to understand something. And if, if, if you haven't listened to anything tonight, listen to this. This is very, very important. Many of the reformers, a spectacular number of the Puritans, I think of William Bates and others, wrote massive volumes on this doctrine. And up until probably 
A hundred years ago, you would have never even heard a gospel sermon without this doctrine being at the forefront. And this doctrine is this. The harmony of the attributes of God. When a theologian says that God is perfect, you think, well, he's without sin. Well, he is without sin, but that's not really the idea here. You see, you and I, we have attributes, don't we, and characteristics. And and they're mutable and changing, and they're completely out of harmony. There's no harmony in our natures. But you see, God is perfect. And God's attributes harmonize perfectly. Sometimes I hear these silly preachers say, you know, instead of being just with you, God was merciful. Well, that presents a theological problem, doesn't it? It means God's mercy is unjust. That doesn't work. You see, God being perfect exists all his attributes in perfect harmony, and thus is the problem. Because although God not only loves, but God is love, he's never not love in any circumstance. Because it's it's an attribute, an immutable, that means unchanging characteristic of God. In the same way that God will never not be holy or never not be righteous, God will never diminish in those attributes, so God will never not be love. He is love. But here's the issue, he's also just. He's just, he's righteous. And and that's why God hates evil. He hates it. He hates it with a hatred that you can't even begin to sound the depths of. He hates evil. He hates sin. And you say, oh yes, yes. You know, uh, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Well, that makes for good songs, but very poor theology. Because you cannot separate the sin from the sinner. And God doesn't throw sin in hell. He throws sinners in hell. Now, just listen for a moment so that you not think me utterly wrong. Psalms 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You You hate all who do iniquity. Another translation, the authorized, I think, says, you hate all who do wrong. Does that describe anybody here in the, in the audience tonight? You abhor all who do wrong. It doesn't say you abhor sin. It says you abhor those who commit sin. You abhor it. You hate sin and you hate them. Your wrath is manifest against them. And why? He is righteous. He is righteous. Now, you say, well, well, you know, I just, I don't, I don't like that. Well, let me give you another text. Psalm 7. God is a righteous judge and a God who is angry every day. How, if I had a dime for every preacher on television that told the people, now the first thing I want to say is God's not angry. Well, the first thing I want to say is that actually he is extremely angry. But now here's the question. 
that is very important. Theological question. If, if you're sitting here going, you know, this is not making a lot of sense. Good, you're thinking. First of all, people will say to me, well, God is love, so how can God hate? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you love Jews? Do you love African Americans? Do you love babies? Do you? Okay. So what, what if you come to me and you say, Brother Paul, what do you think about Auschwitz? And I go, that doesn't really bother me. I don't, I don't care. I mean, it doesn't move me or anything. Well, Brother Paul, what do you think about slavery in the colonial period? Oh, you know, it helped the economy. I mean, Brother Paul, what do you think about 60 million babies being killed in abortion in the United States alone? Oh, you know, they're an inconvenience. What if I did not react to those horrific things? What would you think about me? You would think I was immoral, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Hopefully. You'd think I was a monster. How can you hear about Auschwitz and all the Jews being slaughtered and tortured and experimented on and not have a sense of justice? How can you think about colonial slavery and not just writhe with anger? I do because I'm righteous, they say. Oh, so you have the right to do that and God doesn't? So you have the right to be angry and declare war you, who I just described in Romans 3, you have the right to stick out your chest and say, I will do justice. I hate everything that is evil. I love righteousness. But the moment I tell you that's exactly what God does, you go, no, I don't like a God like that. Think about it. I was preaching on Noah one time. A lady said, that's not my God. And I said, no, ma'am, it is certainly not. <laughs> you see, what you need to understand, there are certain, I have relationships all over the world. I sometimes feel like I'm more Latin than I am American. I've... I've lived so long in, Latin, in the Latin world. When I'm in Africa, I just, so many years now, 20 some years of, of just, when I saw the Afghani Christians and we trying to rescue them out of the hell that they're in right now, buying them like they were cattle. I, I love them, but I also get angry when I see me, pole washer, a sinner, but there's something in me, it's called the image of God. And when I see these things, I get angry because I love those people. I want you to know something. God is a God who is angry every day as we slaughter children. As we live as though he were not. As there is no fear and no understanding. as we are vipers and our children are like hatched vipers, as the world tumbles down into an insanity and an immorality, as it declares war on God, as we murder the innocent, as we destroy virtue, 
as we take a knife and stab it right into the heart of everything that is beautiful, as we vomit out our iniquity? Yes, God hates. How does it work? Imagine this. God in his justice looking at humanity. God in his justice looking at you. Do you realize that if I could pull out your heart right now and put it on a CD or some sort of video player and show it every thought you've ever thought, even what you're thinking right now, and play it before this congregation of people, you would run out of here and you'd never show your face here again. Everything God knows. And it's as though the justice of God is crying out for your damnation. And with one hand, the mercy of God is holding back his wrath. And with the other hand, the mercy of God is beckoning you to come to salvation before it is too late. But I can assure you, my friend, one day the offer will be taken back. And there will be no offer of salvation. And the hand of God's mercy will be withdrawn and there'll be nothing left for you throughout eternity except the wrath of Almighty God, the holy hatred of God against all your evil. You said, well, how then can we be saved? The Puritans would have said it this way. How can the mercy of God and the righteousness of God be reconciled? Now, I want to take you on a little Bible lesson. And I want you to see this problem for yourself very clearly. First of all, go to Exodus 34. Now listen. Exodus 34, this is one of the greatest revelations of God in the Old Testament. God comes down and speaks for himself. It says in verse 5 of chapter 34 of Exodus, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. So far, so good. It's just beautiful. And then he goes on, it even gets better. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's not trying to give us a, a study in Hebrew here. He's heaping one term upon another to say that this God forgives all types and kinds of sin. But then look who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Hold it. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? He forgives all types and kinds of sin, but everyone who is guilty of sin, they will be punished. They will. How do you work that out? He forgives all types and kinds of sin. Everyone who has ever committed a sin will be punished. And punished precisely. Justly. And you say, how does that work? Here's what you need to see. God will punish every sin that has ever been committed. He will punish every sin you have ever committed. 
And there's one of two ways in which he'll do it. He will punish every sin you have ever committed as you spend an eternity in hell cast out of the presence of God and positively suffering the full force of his wrath. That's one way in which he will punish every sin you've ever committed. But there's another way. For those who trust in Christ, he punished every one of their sins on his son when he hung on Calvary and he crushed his own son under the full force of the wrath that you and I would deserve throughout an eternity in hell. Your sins are going to be punished, every one of them. My sins are going to be punished, every one of them. The question is, how do you want to do this? And go to hell throughout all eternity. Or look to the one lifted up like a serpent in the wilderness, bearing your sin and crushed under the holy hatred of God in your place. I want you to go now to just another text. I want you to think about, look at Proverbs 17, 15. It says, speaking of, it's speaking just of a proverb. And he says, he, any person who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now look at this text, look at it. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Abomination translates a Hebrew word that's probably the strongest that we have. It is, it is a hor horrific word. It's, it's disgusting, vile, abomination. But look what it's saying. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. But what do we sing about every Sunday? God justifies the wicked. But God's saying anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination to him. So how can God justify the wicked? Do you see that? That's Paul's question in Romans 3. How can God justify the wicked when anyone who justifies the wicked to God is an abomination? How can he do it? How can he do it? And isn't that what we sing about, isn't it? I was in sin and God justified me and we all shout hallelujah. But the Bible says anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God. So how can God justify the wicked and still be holy? Let me give you an, an illustration. Let's say you go home tonight and someone has slaughtered your entire family. And the murderer is wringing the life out of that person. Your, your youngest sibling, as you come through the door, you throw the murderer to the floor, you tie him up, you call the police. Everyone in your town, your neighborhood, comes to the court meeting later because they all loved your family. They knew your family. This criminal is now standing before the judge. He's guilty. And the judge looks down and looks at the criminal and says, I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, therefore I pardon you. What are you going to say? What is the entire neighborhood going to say? Are they going to go, oh, what a beautiful, beautiful mercy here. No, you're going to be fiercely angry. You're going to say the judge is far more corrupt than the man who murdered your family. You're going to write the president. You're going to write Congress. You're going to go to the news. You're going to say this man is so vile. Well, then how can God pardon you? 
and me. You see, there's the problem. If he simply pardons you and pardons me, he is no longer just. Now go to one more text, Micah. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. So here we have it. We have these people who have sinned and deserve the justice of God, and yet now they're singing that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and he's going to forgive them. But how's he going to do it? Look what it says. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you'll cast our sins into the depth of the sea. So we get these Christian songs, right? And they go, you know, God has, he's tread our sins under his feet. Hallelujah. He's cast our sins into the sea. Hallelujah. This is fun. This is wonderful. You don't understand anything. Do you think he took your sin, threw it on the ground and stomped it? You think he took your sin, rolled it up in a ball and threw it into the sea? Is that what you think? He took your sin and he threw it on his son and he trampled his son down under his own wrath. He took your sin and he put it on his son and he threw his son into the sea of his holy hatred against evil. And his son suffered every penalty, everything you deserved until he could cry out, it is finished. Do not see when Jesus is crossing with his disciples and a great storm comes up and then he's sleeping in the bow of the boat. Do you remember someone else who was sleeping in the bow of a boat? Jonah. So Jonah is a prophet who's rebellious in Israel. He's in a boat sleeping and the judgment of God comes. You see, you need to understand this New Testament text. You can't understand it apart from Jonah. So these disciples are going out across the sea with Jesus. They're being told by the religious leaders of the day that this man is a disobedient prophet. He gets in a ship and goes to sleep just like Jonah. A storm comes up. And I believe those disciples were probably thinking, are the Pharisees right? Is he a Jonah? We're going to die. What does Jesus do? He walks out and goes, peace. He could calm that storm with a wave of his hand, but he couldn't take away wrath with a wave of his hand. On the cross, he threw himself into the sea of God's raging anger and righteous hatred against your evil and he was swallowed up by it. Gives a whole new meaning to those songs about casting sin into the sea, doesn't it? 
Now, let's go back to our text. And I know I've gone, well, let's just keep going. <laughs> now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. What is a propitiation? It is a sacrifice that is given that satisfies justice and removes wrath. Now, I want you to notice something. It says about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Why did God display his son publicly on that tree? Why didn't he put away sin in the wilderness or somewhere else? Why was Christ hung up over the religious center of the universe, Jerusalem? As the British say, God placarded him, billboarded him. Placed him on a cross. He displayed him. Why did God publicly display Christ? Because he was proving something. Something that if you get a grasp of, it will change your view of the gospel forever. God was showing something. God was having to correct an idea. He is redeeming, but he's revealing. So why did he present him that way? It says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God. Why does God have to demonstrate that he's righteous? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. What's it talking about? So just by way of illustration... Adam and Eve fall in the garden. Perfect justice would have ended it there. You sinned, you die now. Imagine the accuser, not only of the brethren, but the accuser of God. Adam and Eve fall. And right after that, in 3.15, we have the Protoevangelicum, the first promise of the gospel. Someone, a seed, born of woman, will come, rectify the whole situation, defeat Satan where he stands. Can you imagine Satan? Where, where's your justice, God? They eat of that tree, they die. You give them the promise? of salvation. They deserve to die. Justice demands they die. Just imagine throughout the whole Old Testament. You know the big ethical problem with Noah and the flood? Satan would say, Noah should have died. Noah deserved death just as much as anyone else. And that's true. Noah was a sinner. He proved it later, didn't he? They deserve to die. Where is your justice? I see no justice here. Oh, Abraham, your friend. He put his wife in jeopardy. He did not believe you. Where's your justice? Where's your righteousness? I sin, I fall, 
righteousness, justice on me. Where's your justice with these, these things of dirt? Oh, and Israel, Israel, your people, they worshiped me in the wilderness. You said so. Kill them. Oh, and David, David, your precious David, a man after your own heart. He's an adulterer and a murderer. Where's your justice? Where is it? You see, from your pitiful little point of view, where you've raised yourself up to be some sort of little God, you sit in judgment of God because you're in disagreement with his judgments. Heaven, which has a clearer view, is in disagreement with his mercy. How can you show mercy when justice demands that all these die? And then one day God answered the question. Now, just for drama's sake, I will. God is sitting on his throne and he calls Satan front and center. Satan, do you want to know how I can give a promise of hope to Adam and Eve? How I can show mercy without violation of my justice? Do you want to know how I can save Noah and his lot from the flood and still be a righteous God? Do you want to know how I can call Abraham my friend? Do you want to know how I can call David my son and forgive all their trespasses? You want to know? All right. Look to Jerusalem and look to that cross where my son now dies for them all. Do you see that? Do you see that? You say, we're saved by faith. Your faith means nothing if there's not atonement for your sin. If justice is not satisfied, you doesn't matter with your faith. Do you understand me? Sin has to be put away. God's justice has to be satisfied. And that's what happened on that tree. So we have Christ in the garden and he cries out three times, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. What was in the cup? I heard, well, I hear these preachers, especially at Easter. Oh my gosh, how can you listen to this stuff? They talk about the nails and the crown and the, and the spear and the beatings and all that was an aspect of the revelation of the wrath of God upon God's Son. But what you need to understand, what was in the cup? Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus he says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Do you want to know what was in the cup? The wrath of almighty God against you was in the cup and against me was in the cup. That's what was in the cup. For those hours of darkness, why darkness? He wanted to display him, and then all of a sudden, darkness. Don't think it was a cloudy day. I believe it's the same darkness that you would have seen in Egypt when a man could not see his hand in front of his face. Why? 
Because Christ could have no consolation as he hung upon that tree. He could not look out at even the women mourning. John from afar. He was shut up all to himself. There has never been a man so alone, so shut up as billow after billow of world destroying wrath of God falls upon his head. Have you never read it pleased the Lord to crush him? What is the cross? God crushing his son under his wrath as his son bears your sin, as his son hangs in your place. And it went on and on and on. He was shut up in that as billow after billow of the wrath of God. And I believe that no one, archangel, man, no matter, no one but the mind of God will ever comprehend what Christ suffered on that tree in that hour, those hours of darkness. When he drank the last drop, he said, it is finished. And he turned over the cup and not one drop came forth. Do you realize this? There is nothing left of the wrath of God for those who find their hiding place in Christ. There is nothing left of anger there's nothing left of wrath. Even when he disciplines the Christian, he does so in love. Every sin, past, present, and future, paid for by your elder brother, by your champion, God's champion. He died a bloody, death and he paid it all God having done that do you actually want to hold up your works to him on the day of judgment and say I need not your son I'll do fine on my own hold up your religion your priest your preacher Really? Drunks, drug addicts, prostitutes, thieves and murderers can find a way to heaven through Jesus Christ. But for the self-righteous, they need to be told they will not enter through the eye of that needle with one shred of self-righteousness on their back. It's through Christ and Christ alone. He died. That is the controlling thing. He died for me. He died for you. But he didn't stay dead. Up. I love that. Up from the grave, he arose. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, was also raised because of our transgression, albeit an extremely difficult text. But at least a core idea here is that 
Well, let me put it this way. All these questions about whether God is righteous or how can God be righteous and merciful at the same time? Christ answered that question on the cross. In one sense, he vindicated God, didn't he? All those accusations throughout all those centuries that God wasn't righteous, Christ vindicated God when he died on that tree. And when God raised him from the dead, God vindicated his son. And he proved something to you. When God raised him from the dead, he was telling you, every one of your sins are atoned for. Everyone. And this is proof. I raised him from the dead. Your debt is finished. I look back on my life before Christ. And I wish I had not been what I was. And I wish I had not committed the sins and the crimes that I committed against a holy God and against people. But in another way, I almost applaud that I was vile. I appreciate it. I'll appreciate it if it makes me see how much I need Jesus. And that I have nothing but Him. We'll get to the closing. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages. The Puritans use this, the Reformers. It was messianic according to the, the rabbis. Christ is raised from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascends. The man, God, yes, but the man, Christ Jesus, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, my brother, ascends. And he reaches the gates of glory, the gates of heaven. And this is what he says. Lift up, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, old ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Spurgeon and others have said, at his voice, all of heaven runs to the parapet and looks over the wall of heaven, saying, who is this? who dares command heaven. What man has ever made it this far? What man dares to lay his hand on this latch? And Jesus responds. They say to him, who is the king of glory? And Jesus responds, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, old ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And at that moment, he opened those gates, not by grace, but by his own virtue, his own righteousness. He had triumphed where everyone had failed. Adam failed. Every descendant of Adam failed. But then comes the Messiah, the Christ, the King, and he prevails. Not only did he obey God perfectly in every aspect of the law, but he did away with sin through his own death and he rose again from the dead and he ascended up into heaven and he commanded those gates to be opened for us. And when he walked through that door, all of heaven crashed to the floor. 
and he ascends up the steps of the throne of God, the man, Christ, Jesus, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. And he sits down at the right hand of God, and I could suppose God would look over and say, it is finished. And the son says, Father, it is finished indeed. You see, really? Could there be anything greater? Could there be anything greater than this? Not a fairy tale, not a myth. A historical event. I have sinned enough today to cast me out. But my brother has prevailed. And he's prevailed for his people. And one day he will return. He will return with a shout, with a trumpet. What should you do? If you do not know him, what should you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent of your sins and believe. How do I know if I've repented? Do you see your sin? Do you see it? Has all hope in self-righteousness drained away from you? Do you see yourself as condemned and do you hate that which condemns you? Do you want to be free from it? Shake it off like shackles. Wash it off like filth. Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust that what he did on that tree is sufficient for you. Acknowledge that you contributed nothing to your salvation except your sin. And that he did it all. That you cling to him. I have told people, I say, run to him. They say, but I have no strength to run. Walk to him. I have no strength to walk. Crawl to him. I have no strength to crawl. Then just fall. Fall upon him. Fall upon him. Trust in Christ. I need to retire you, but... This is the pain of the preacher. It drives him mad. It makes him apocalyptic. That I know so little about this glorious thing, but even what I know I can't say in words. I suppose that not even the words of angels will ever be able to describe what Christ is and what Christ has done. Oh, believe in him. And you young people, do not waste your life. Don't waste your life. Follow him. I am now 61. I have lived in him 40 years. I regret nothing that I lost in his name. I only regret everything I kept for myself. 
Trust in him. Serve him. Serve him. Know his gospel. Preach it. But most importantly, believe in it. Believe in it. Believe. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Oh God, his beauty, it almost hurts. His glory is so great. Please, God, please, please, please work among this people. Encourage the, the mature, the godly to go on with you, to press on to know the Lord. Encourage the young ones, Lord, to follow that the lost might be saved. Oh God, open their hearts, take out their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that would respond to you. Do a work of your spirit, oh God, in Jesus' name. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.